the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Being a self-made person to get into heaven by their own good works and the stuff that they do, it is impossible. He is using here a metaphor to express an impossible thing. We cannot get to heaven except by one way. And that's why Jesus then goes on to say this in verse 27 when he looks at them and he says, With man this is impossible. Salvation is impossible unto yourself. But not with God all things are possible. Trying to get to heaven by your own good works is impossible. In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you that no amount of your own works can get you access to the entrance of heaven. There is only one way, and one way alone. Pastor Gary explains that Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through Him. Don't put off salvation for tomorrow. It might only come today. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Receive the gift of eternal life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 10, with today's edition of New Road Radio. What was happening is they were perpetuating a cycle. It wasn't that they were just divorcing. They were divorcing and remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, and remarrying. Because this whole thing is like a long run-on sentence that really is talking about what happens when you divorce and your wife remarries, and then that guy gets tired of her or that guy dies, and she wants to come back to you, and then you just kind of pick up where you left off. And it's just very this very haphazard you know, a senseless way of dealing with something that is very, very serious. Uh, many years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, there were a couple of, of teenage girls in my youth group, and, uh, and I went over to visit them at their house one day, and the mom was out mowing the lawn, and I, and, which was unusual because the dad was always the one mowing the lawn, and so I'm out there in the, in the lawn talking uh, to, to the mom and, um, of the teenage girls, and, and I said, Where, where's your husband? I called him by name, and, and she said, well... Do you have a minute? Like, okay. She said, um, you knew that, that uh, he was divorced before we married. And I said, yeah, I, I know. As before, he was a Christian. And Well, he had this epiphany that he, that he thinks after being married now for almost 20 years now to this current wife and having three wonderful daughters, that he should go back to his first wife. And he left his family to go back to his first wife. And... Um, you talk about, you know, there's hurt all, all, all over the place. 
You're divorcing your first wife, you're hurting her, then you're marrying again, and now you're having three children, and now you're divorcing the second wife, and you're going back to the first wife, the second wife is hurt, the three girls are hurt. I mean, it's messy. It's terrible. And this is the kind of thing that, that Moses was trying to regulate here. And Jesus, what he does is he gets back to the basics and he says, look, God's original intent here was for one man to marry one woman and for them to be married for a lifetime. And then his disciples kind of pull him to the side and they want to know a little bit more about this, verse 10 says. And he answered them in verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery with her. Now, one of the, one of the beauties about the Gospels, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that we have the perspective of four different people who are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit to record the words and events of Jesus and his ministry. And so what you get is different angles that help complement each other so that you have a fuller story. It's like, you know, if, if, if four people were to see a car accident, and they had to testify as witnesses, you'd have four different people who would say many things that are similar, but they would also have a different angle, perhaps, of, of the timeline and events, and because they were standing at different positions and they could see different things that happened, and so their report of the events of the car accident would complement each other because you have four different angles. What you have here in the gospel, sometimes I hear people say, you know, how come one gospel says this and another gospel says that? It looks like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. They complement each other. What you have is the fullness of the story. One of the things that Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't is that when Jesus gets to this point and he says that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 19.9 that Jesus adds except for marital unfaithfulness that Jesus inserts the word in the Greek, it's pornea, we get our English word pornography from it, and it's a broad word that talks about all kinds of sexual sin and sexual immorality. And Jesus is saying here that basically there's one biblical grounds for divorce, and that would be sexual immorality, the breaking of the marital bond. Now, God will also inspire Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to talk about another exception, and that is when a non-believer leaves and bails and abandons you, and you as a believer uh, are able to remarry. So there are two grounds for divorce in the Bible. And that would be marital unfaithfulness uh, and or if you are married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to leave. Uh, besides that, there just aren't. Obviously, there are some unhealthy uh, relationships that, that would be unsafe to, to be in. And so for you, it might be uh, a long period of separation. Uh, sometimes people just simply aren't resigned to perhaps in a situation where they might need to be separated and celibate to be separated and celibate because a lot of times we think it's all about my happiness and without real regard for sometimes what God's word says, I want my happiness more than I want to be uh, separated and celibate. So, you know, it gets, again, it gets complicated, it gets uh, messy, but the bottom line is we should as Christians hold to the sacredness of marriage as a covenant instituted by God. We should not give in to the practice of our culture to just engage in this kind of casual, no-fault divorce. We should take marriage seriously. We should intend when we walk down the aisle to stick together through thick and thin. It is for better or worse. It is in sickness and in health. It is to love, honor, and cherish till death us do part. And so those 
vows that we take are critical to living out our faith in a, in a wholesome way. And it, and it can be hard. It can be tough. You know, I tell people something when they get marital, premarital counseling, we say, listen, discount the first five years. What do you mean? It's supposed to be the most wonderful years of our lives. Yeah, first five years are going to be pretty rough because you're going to be making a lot of adjustments. And what about the years after? Well, it kind of keeps going. But anyhow, <laughs> you, uh, but you're going to be making constant adjustments because you're two different people with irreconcilable differences. But we need to have grace for those who have been divorced because it's very painful as well. Now, as we move on here, Jesus uh, engages little children here in a, in a very tender way, but uh, his disciples think that uh, Jesus is too busy to be bothered by children. Verse 13 says that people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. I always read this passage here when we dedicate little ones. And it says in verse 14 that when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And so, you know, we practice that here at Cornerstone. We just dedicate little ones to the Lord. We pray over them, and we ask the Lord to bless them. But, you know, imagine this. Jesus' disciples, the ones who should be the most spiritually mature, actually think that Jesus is too busy to be bothered by children. And they are upset at parents who would bother Jesus with their little stinky children. And, uh, and Jesus is indignant. He's mad here at his disciples for, for thinking that he's too busy uh, for children. And so he's a very tender moment here where he takes the children and he speaks about children as an example to adults. That in essence, when he talks here about, you know, unless you become like little children, we'll never enter the kingdom of God because there's something very uh, innocent, there's something uh, very wonderful and wide-eyed about kids. They're, they are humble in nature until they grow up to become adults like us, and then pride sets in. But basically, children at first, they're very humble. There's no pretense. They don't have any agenda. You know, they're just, you know, uh, uh, wide-eyed with wonder about their world. And in a similar way, we need to approach Jesus with humility. You will never have a relationship with Jesus if you come just all proud and arrogant. It requires a certain measure of recognizing that he is great and I am not and he knows all things and I don't and he is Savior and I need him. And that requires humbling ourselves and, and to uh, you know, be, be contrite before him. Because he esteems here these little children as, as illustrations of what we should be about. We should humble ourselves like little children in order to enter the kingdom. He took them in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Now, I think the following story is um, a great example of why we need to be humble and broken and contrite before him. Because here comes what your Bibles might say as mine does, the subtitle for this section, The Rich Young Man. Verse 17 says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, now, just for you note-takers in the margin of your Bible, you might take note that Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, says that he was young when, when Matthew tells the story. Luke, when he tells the story in Luke 18, he said that he was a ruler. And uh, all three, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, say that he's wealthy. So he's this rich, young, successful guy. 
He's basically Justin Bieber without a police record. All right? That's basically what he is. And so, and he's a very successful, very young, very wealthy, very talented. And, and he, and he asks a question that indicates what he's used to doing in his life. Because notice, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's all about doing to him. Because everything that he's accomplished or, or achieved is because he did something. And you know what happens here? He's about to encounter for the first time in his life, it's not about doing, it's about being. Who are you in relation to God? And he calls Jesus good teacher. Good teacher. And he falls down at his feet, he bows down in, in honor. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks in verse 18, why do you call me good? Now I love the way that Jesus often will answer a question with a question. This is important for all of us in sharing your faith. And uh, if you want to, you know, if you love studying apologetics about how to share your faith and, you know, how to respond to people when they ask you some critical questions about Christianity and why you believe what you believe, that a great tool to employ that Jesus models for us is to ask a question uh, in response to a question, not to be, you know, obstinate, but as an entry point. Jesus asks questions as an entry point to find out where the person is coming from. Too many times when people ask you a question about your faith or about Christianity or about the Lord or about God, they're asking and we rush to answer them, but we're missing the entry point because they're asking from a different perspective. And so what Jesus does here is he says, well, why do you call me good? Here's what he wants to find out. He says, no one is good except God alone. So he's wanting to know from this guy, will you call me good, but no one is good except God. So either I'm not good, because you shouldn't call anybody good except God, or I'm God. Which am I? I'm either not good, or I'm God. He's trying to find out here what this guy actually believes about it. And then Jesus goes on, he says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, or in other words, do not covet, honor your father and mother. Now, what Jesus just did here is, he just quoted the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, obviously, Ten Commandments, (laughs) and there are two tablets of the testimony. The second tablet are these, and if you look at what Jesus just recited here, he recited all of these, uh, almost in the same order. He starts actually with number six, and he says, um, you know, you, you've heard the commandments, do not murder, and then he continues in order, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not covet, and then he goes back to the one at the top, honor your father and mother, but he recites all of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And what the second tablet of the Ten Commandments are all about is the horizontal. It's all about our relationship with our fellow man. The second half of the Ten Commandments is all about our relationship with our fellow man. Are you honoring your mom and dad? Don't murder somebody. Uh, Don't commit adultery. Don't don't defraud your spouse and don't commit adultery with another person. Don't steal from somebody. Don't give false testimony against another person. Don't covet what somebody else has. The second half of the Ten Commandments is all horizontal. It's all relational. 
in relation to your fellow man. So that's what Jesus quotes. Now this is all to expose a greater uh, issue in this guy's life, and so he does this intentionally. He doesn't start with the first tablet, he starts with the second tablet. And in response, the guy says this, verse 20, Teacher, he declared, all these, notice he dropped the good, okay? Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I've been going to church all my life. I've kept all of these. And Jesus, verse 21, looked at him and loved him. By the way, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only Mark records that second part. Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This wasn't a look like he was scolding him. This isn't a look of like, I can't believe you only have obeyed the second tablet. It's none of that. He's not squinting his eyes. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not. He looks at him and he loves him. Because he has genuine compassion for this guy. This guy has been doing his best. But Jesus is about to show him that doing your best is not good enough. Because what happens is then Jesus, after he looks at him and loves him, he says this in verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Everything. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad. This is the only time recorded in the Gospels that someone rejects the invitation to be saved. And what Jesus has just exposed is the problem that the guy has is the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because the first tablet, it's all about your relationship with God. The whole part about, you know, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's all relational to God. The first tablet of the testimony is all vertical. And what is Jesus doing? He's exposing this guy's problem. The problem was not that he was wealthy. God never has a problem with people being wealthy. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 18 that it is God who's given us the ability to produce wealth. David was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. God's problem is not with wealth. The problem God has is when we make wealth our God. And that's what this guy had done. This guy had made wealth, had made money his idol, he had made money his God, and thus he had violated the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because instead of serving God and God alone, he was serving money. And he was putting money on the throne of his life. And that's why he went away sad. Not because wealth itself is a sin, it's not. It's because wealth had become his God. And Jesus, in this tactful, loving way, exposed the guy's problem. The problem was not the second tablet. That's wonderful. Horizontal, you're doing great, but vertically, not so good. And when Jesus challenged him to sell everything and come follow him, give everything he had to the poor, his face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth, because wealth, in essence, was his God, was his idol. And Jesus looked around at his disciples in verse 23, and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God who have made money their God. That's what he's saying there. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Now that might seem like a question out of context, but here's, here was the common thought of the day. The thought was that if, per, if a person was wealthy, it was an indication of God's favor. The disciples needed to learn something here themselves as well. That the idea was, well, this guy is wealthy. If you're saying, Jesus, it's hard for, 
for people who are wealthy, who have made wealth their God, to get into heaven, we thought that wealth was an indication of God's favor. So what are you saying? This is confusing to his own disciples. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A rich man, again, implied who has made money his or her God. Now, many of you have heard a lot of different teachings, as I have over the years, about the eye of the needle and the camel and all this stuff about how on some city gates there was a smaller little gate and that camels would have to go through it after the main gate was shut at the end of a day and the way that the camel would have to get through that little tiny gate, which was sometimes called the eye of a needle, is to throw off all the baggage and everything and then push and squeeze that little camel through that little eye of the needle. That is baloney. There's no such thing. Listen, in Mark's gospel, the word for needle is actually the Greek word for a sewing needle. And in Luke's gospel, because he was a doctor, he uses a different Greek word, but it's a, it's a word that means a surgical needle. The thing that Jesus was saying is, for someone who was made something or someone else their God instead of the true and living God, it is impossible to get into heaven. In the context, what he means is a self-made person is never going to be good enough to get into heaven. It is impossible for a person who is just simply doing and being a self-made person to get into heaven by their own good works and the stuff that they do. It is impossible. He is using here a metaphor to express an impossible thing. We cannot get to heaven except by one way. And that's why Jesus then goes on to say this in verse 27 when he looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible. Salvation is impossible unto yourself, but not with God all things are possible. And Peter said to him, well, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> this, is, this is funny because what Peter is doing here is he wanted to contrast their obedience with that of this rich guy. And so Peter says, well, you know, we've done pretty good because we left everything to follow you. You know, <laughs> let me see if I can stretch my arm back again and pat my own back here. That's what I'm thinking. Jesus, right? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, parenthetically, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, by the way, and in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter prides himself on how much they left in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying, again, you know, I've heard a variety of teachings on this, you know, Kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity people like you to think that, you know, no matter what you give, you're going to get a hundredfold in this lifetime. Bless God, you're going to get it all back and more. Listen, if he means it literally, you're going to get a hundred mothers too, and a hundred sisters too. The only part that the health, wealth, and prosperity people like are the hundred homes. We like the hundred homes part. We want that. Oh, we forget we want, we don't want the persecution part, and we don't want a hundred mothers. What Jesus is saying is this. Anything you possibly give up in the service of the kingdom pales in comparison to that which you will gain. There's nothing that you and I can give up that is even comparable to all that we gain in Christ. Everything that he has given us by spilling his own blood on the cross to purchase us from sin and death so that we might have life in his name and heaven is our eternal home and reward, nothing we could possibly sacrifice in this lifetime could compare to the wonderful things that await us in Christ Jesus. 
So don't go around thinking of all the things you've given up and thinking somehow that God is impressed by that. He's not impressed by anything I've given up. Because what? He has given up immeasurably more than I could ever possibly give up. Jesus gave his own life for me and for you. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know